Well, we are entering into the final part of Revelation. Uh, We're looking at some of the last visions of John that were given. John, the apostle of the Lord, who we went back to the first chapter of Revelation, and we saw him there exiled uh, on Patmos. He was there because he was a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. He was testifying to Jesus, and it is there where his eyes are open. He's caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he sees a grand and glorious vision. The glorified, risen Savior. And from there, he's given instructions to write. So everything we've seen thus far in our study has been John being diligent to write down carefully all that has been spoken to him, all that he has seen, all that he has heard, so that the church of Jesus Christ could be strengthened and encouraged. Because of the times we live in, this book is supremely relevant, but it has been For the entire history of the church of Jesus Christ. Who's always faced hostility. Who's always been marginalized. Who's always been persecuted. Who's always been oppressed. It is no different today. But we're past like all of the heavy judgment stuff. And now we come to this final chapters here. These last two. Where Revelation is introducing to us a glorious picture. It's a picture of the glories of the world to come. A world, brothers and sisters, that is beyond our ability to comprehend. It is beyond our finite mind's capacity to even be expressed with words adequately what these things are that John is seeing. He can't even express those things. But they're absolutely breathtaking. And they answer, or they give us a glimpse into the answer of a question that I think every one of us, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, have had at one time or another. And that is, what will heaven be like? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought about what are we going to do in heaven? What's there? What's going to occupy our time for eternity? Well... We're going to find out a few of those things today. Our main point is this, is that as faithful followers of Christ, we must set our hope on the glories of the world to come when God will make all things new. Revelation 21, the first eight verses, hear the words of the living God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away Every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, 
and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. These are the words of the Lord. Now, in our last message, when we looked at the close of chapter 20, it was the scene of final judgment. What we saw there was the end of the world, the present world order, as you and I know it. Our, our enemy, Satan, was defeated. He was thrown in the lake of fire. And John catches this glimpse of a great white throne. And he has a scene there where he sees the, the heavens and the earth. They just kind of roll back. They vanish. They fade away. All of the substance of this world, all of the significance of this world, all of the relevance of this world, the world as we know it, it's gone. It vanishes. It fades away into insignificance. And we see there that those who are before the throne of God there, they're called to account. And those who worship the beast and took his mark and refused God and refused the gospel of Jesus Christ were cast into the lake of fire to face eternal and everlasting punishment. But the saints of God, they enter into eternal rest. It's a glorious scene. And now it shifts again. We get a different aspect of what's happening in this post-judgment world, right? Where the world as we know it is gone. It tells us there in the first verse that he sees a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Well, because the former one had passed. The old one was gone. That's why it's a fulfillment of Isaiah 65. Isaiah catches this glimpse of of the, the world after Christ returns and his throne is established. And he says there in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. How glorious that Isaiah sees this, and now we have the fulfillment of it. And God declares in this divine pronouncement in verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. And though it's stressed in the present tense in the way we understand it, that's not what he's saying there, but it has begun in this scene here. But what exactly is made new? What does it mean that there's a new heaven and a new earth? Well, anytime we see this span of something, new heavens and new earth, we're talking about the whole thing, everything, everything from the heavens all the way to the earth. It encompasses the entirety of the cosmos. All of that is being made new. There's a destruction, if you will, to the present world order, the creation as we know it. And that has to happen. There has to be a decreation before this event or this aspect of recreation takes place where the old has to go away for the new to be ushered in to decreation. But what does that look like? Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of views on this. Scholars are mixed and and they differ in their understanding of this. There's three general views to this. One is that there's a there's a continuity to this world as we know it. That it's really not going to be destroyed. But what's in view here is that there's no more sin or death in this present world. So it's going to go on, but it's no longer going to be subject to decay. And no longer be subject to death or the effects of sin 
all of that has been eradicated. Another popular view is that of complete annihilation. All of the cosmos will be obliterated. It'll be completely consumed and burned up. And we kind of have that indication of that language in, in Peter's writing. In 2 Peter 3.10, uh, a prophecy of the day of the Lord. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be Exposed. I mean, we kind of get that understanding from that dissolved, burned up, you know, uh, they're, they're going to be rolled up. There's other New Testament passages that declare the heavens passing away like this, the earth passing away, where it's almost like they're going to wear out like an old garment and be disposed of. And you see that in Hebrews chapter 1. But is that what's going to happen? Will it all be obliterated? Will, be, will it be completely annihilated and snuffed out? Well, I don't, I don't think so. Can't know for sure, but I get a glimpse of something and I get an understanding here in, in, in what we've already seen in Revelation, how we've been looking at it and looking at these particular Old Testament prophecies. And those, though those Old Testament prophecies kind of depict this, this, uh, this upending of our world with pretty graphic detail, there's nothing in those prophecies that indicate that God is starting all over. That we're kind of going back to a Genesis, you know, one, two, primordial state where God now begins to create and make again. We don't really have that indication in Scripture. In fact, if that were the case, it doesn't really follow the pattern of Scripture, which is redemption and then renewal. So a brand new creation is kind of not what's in view here, but a recreation of the existing world. Let me give you a little bit of understanding on this. Now, the, the word for new there in the Greek, you know, when we understand if something is brand new, it's almost as if it's just come into existence, right? We also think of new as something that's kind of been refreshed, you know, it's a new generation of it, a new version of it, right? Uh, so this word that's used here of Greek, it's one of the Greek words, kainos here, is used to consider the aspect of the quality of the newness of, of a thing and not necessarily the aspect of it just recently having come into being. Right? So when new is used here, it's used in terms of this being an improvement over and above the old thing that it has replaced. I think a third way here, a third way of looking at what does it mean that all of this is going to be made new and that and the creation as we know it to be destroyed, is that the physical creation will experience a complete transformation, a complete renewal. And it's going to follow the pattern of what we already know in the spiritual. What happens with us? We are dead. When we become born again, God breathes life into us. The scripture calls us what? A new creation ourselves. Well, does he obliterate us? Does he annihilate us? He doesn't, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And notice the similar language here. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So the old world, the world as we know it, will pass away and experience a new birth. We could say creation is going to be born again just like we were following the pattern of redemption and renewal. 
And here's what I think that means for us. It means that we won't find ourselves in some alien landscape. That when this is renewed, remade, recreated, it's going to be very recognizable to us. It's not going to be some alien environment. The world, we're going to know we're in the world because we've inhabited it already. And it's going to be a physical world because we're going to have physically resurrected bodies. We're not going to be Casper, the friendly ghost floating around, you know, these incorporeal beings just, you know, you know, we can see things, you know, we could just kind of float through the universe. That's not what it's going to be, brothers and sisters. We can see this clearly, and we're going to go on here so that you're going to get a good grasp of this. The earth is going to be our heaven. We think of heaven as something just out there in the clouds, way beyond the earth. No, no, this is going to be heaven, and you'll see that. For some of you, that might, you might be hearing that for the first time, but the earth will be our home, a real physical place with real physical stuff, and we'll live in it with real physical bodies because we've been made fit for the new order that God is making. The destiny of God's people is to inhabit this newly transformed physical environment in our resurrected physical bodies. Heaven is a place on earth. Just remember that, okay? Remember that. But look at what he says there in, in the second part of, 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 there, of, the, of the verse there. It says, and the sea was no more. That, that a unique feature of the new, of the new heavens and specifically of the new earth, is the absence of the sea. The absence of the oceans. Now, if you're someone who loves the beach, and loves the water, you might be getting a little sad right now. You mean I won't be able to wade my toes in the water anymore? I won't go surfing, I won't go swimming? Is that what it means here? Are we going to live in some Martian landscape? Well, all we look see is just dirt, you know, everywhere we look. Of course not. That's not what it means here at all. I mean, we've already seen this multiple times in Revelation. The seas are metaphorical. They're figurative. They're symbols of something. It represents something in Scripture. And the body of Scripture tells us that this representation of the seas is a place from where evil comes from. To the Jewish people, when they thought about the sea, when they looked at the Old Testament scriptures, especially in Isaiah, the sea was the place where sin and evil and chaos emerged from. Stands for all the unbelieving, rebellious nations who persecute the people of God. Where did the first beast rise up out of? The sea. Chapter 13. We saw in the final judgment scene in chapter 20, the sea gave up its dead. Is referring to the unbelievers. So this foaming, churning, tumultuous sea is not depicted as a place of rest, but one of chaos and conflict, and all manners of filth and evil emerge from it. Isaiah 57, 20 says this, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. That's the sea. And it says here, the sea is no more. So what is it that John is seeing here? He's seeing that in this renewed realm, evil, chaos, death, sin have been vanquished. 
They're not present in this new creation. Augustine, in his City of God, writing on this particular verse, wrote, For then this world of ours, made restless and stormy by the lives of men, and hence figuratively called the sea, will have passed away. That's what's in view here. So there's nothing here in this new heaven and the new earth where there's no evil, no sin, no unbelievers that could threaten the peace and tranquility of the saints of God. Brothers and sisters, we go back all the way to chapter 4. When John's gaze is lifted, he sees a door open in heaven and he sees a throne. And one of the symbols he sees and the images he sees before this throne is a sea of glass like crystal. What does that mean? It means that the sea there isn't foaming and churning in the presence of God. Where God is, the seas have been stilled. They've been calmed. None of that can exist in his presence. Well, that's exactly what's in the new heaven and the new earth. No sea. Peace. Nothing there to threaten the tranquility of God's people. It's all characterized by peace. So the world will be, brothers and sisters, exactly as God intended for it to be. That's glorious. That's glorious. It's going to be greater than a return to Eden before the fall. Much greater than that. As you think of it, was was the possibility of evil existence or the threat of evil in the garden? You betcha. It was there. The serpent showed up. What's going to happen in this new earth, the new Eden? No serpent. No threat. No evil. Nothing is going to be there to threaten that. And that's awesome. Verse 2. You see something else as well. Something else that's new. A new City, a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, this is also part of that uh, prophecy in Isaiah 65. I encourage you to read it. You're going to see this is exactly where John is getting all of this imagery from. Now, we're going to go over the new Jerusalem next week in greater detail because what follows in this next section of chapter 21 is a great amplification of the new Jerusalem and what it represents. And we will spend some time there. But simply, what what is John seeing here? He is seeing the church triumphant, the glorified church of Jesus Christ, the perfected, beautified bride of Christ, the one we looked at in chapter 19 that was present at the marriage supper of the Lamb in glory. She's represented as a city. She's represented as a bride. Two great metaphors there. The church, brothers and sisters, as the bride, is going to look her best because God makes her ready. We talked a lot about that in chapter 19. Right now, what is God doing with his church? He's making her ready. Just like a bride takes time to beautify herself. Yeah, the groom should as well. But we're going to stick with this metaphor here, all right? The bride does everything to make herself ready. Goes on a diet, just working out, you know, gets her hair done, gets her teeth done, gets her eyelashes done. I don't know what else she does, but she does stuff like that. Makeup, nails, pedicures, manicures, body cures, the whole thing, all right? Wraps, you know, lotions, beautifying herself for what? For the wedding day. 
And when we think of the, we look at the church in its current state and what it looks like, you know, what a mess the church is in. Church is messy, isn't it? It's ugly at times. It's got a lot of warts and blemishes. Got a lot of like a fungus on the toenail sometimes in some places. But there's also a lot of beautiful things about the church. But throughout all of this time, throughout the church age, what is God doing but beautifying his church, preparing his church for the wedding day? That's what's going to be happening. So that on this day, when John sees this, this beautiful city coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, that is the bride who has been made beautiful. So she's presented on that day to her husband, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, without spot or blemish or wrinkle, completely holy, clothed in splendor and glory. And you, as part of that bride, and, and me as part of the bride of Christ, everything that happens in our life, everything that happens in our walk with the Lord, in our spiritual life, in our Christian faith, is God getting us ready for the wedding day. He's preparing us. It's what God has been doing throughout all of history. Shaping and forming his people to be his bride so that she will reflect his glory. It is what our little marriages here on earth are to represent. It is the picture that all of this is pointing to. The glorious wedding between the lamb and his chosen bride who has been made beautiful For her wedding day. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be characterized by this complete intimate union between God and his people. There's intimacy between a bride and her husband, isn't there? We are going to experience perfect, complete unity and union and intimacy with our God. That's kind of what the next verses begin to reveal to us. What's heaven like? What are we going to do in heaven? Well, we've already seen there's going to be a lot of singing, loud singing, deafening singing, but we'll have glorified ears, right? So we don't blow out our eardrums. Lots of singing, lots of worship. How can we not? We're going to be in the unrestrained glory and presence of the creator, the God of the universe and the lamb. What are we going to do but fall on our faces before him and worship? A lot of worship. A lot of singing, and this is just a foretaste that we get to do here on earth. Of that time, we're going to do it with the multitude of saints in glory. There's going to be work. Right? The scripture tells us there's labor, there's work. It's only it's not going to be like the work we do now where everything's a chore, everything's hard, and, and we work hard and we don't produce much. Well, everything, whatever that's going to be, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be perfect. It's going to be productive. It's going to be fruitful. Everything we set our hands to do will thrive and flourish in this renewed creation. There's going to be some exercise of rulership we looked at already. We're going to be reigning with Christ. I don't know what that all symbolizes, but the scripture alludes to that many times. We're going to reign with Christ. We're seated in the heavenly places with him. We saw that with the saints that were seated with Christ, already presently reigning the martyred saints of God and those that are in glory with him now in this intermediate state. So that's going to be part of it. But what else? Are we going to hike? Are we going to ride bikes? Are we going to climb mountains? Are we going to surf and skateboard? 
Are we going to read? Are we going to do art? Well, there's some wacky charismatic cuckoos out there who'll tell you that they've seen a lot of weird things in heaven, but we don't have any idea. We don't have a clue. No one's gone to heaven and been back. Okay? What we're seeing here is starting to get a glimpse and a picture of this world that's going to emerge that's very much like our world now, but recreated. But what are we going to do on it? I don't know. See, John isn't as concerned with what we're going to do. He's not really telling us what we're going to do to show us what we're going to be doing. But there's an element here of showing us what life's going to be like in this new. And there's two profound realities that will shape our life in the renewed creation. And the first there is found in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Profound reality we know of heaven here from this passage is that God dwells with us. He hears, John hears this declaration from the throne. It may be an angel. We're we're not told, but he hears it from the throne that expands this city and bride metaphor that we just saw. Because it's a fulfillment of the covenant promise that God made with his people in the covenant of grace. And that starts all the way back. We can look at, at, at chapter 12 of Genesis. And God appears to Abram and makes a covenant with Abram. And he reconfirms it in Genesis 17. He changes his name to Abraham and says that he will be the God of Abraham's offspring. He will be their God. He reaffirms this promise in chapter 6 of Exodus. Where Moses goes forth and tells the people there that God is promising to deliver them up out of Egypt. And he declares, I will redeem you and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Over and over we see this repeated. Leviticus 26. God tells him, I will make my dwelling place among you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Jeremiah and Ezekiel repeatedly referred to this covenant promise throughout their writings. From cover to cover, the covenant promise that was repeatedly stated finds its complete fulfillment right here in Revelation. He will be our God and we will be His people. He will dwell with us. That word dwell is a word that we translate as tabernacle. It's the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was where God met with his people. It's the place where God's presence was. That's what the tabernacle was. First we saw the tabernacle, which was a temple in Eden. Then we have this temple in the wilderness, the tabernacle that Moses was commanded to build. And he was commanded to build it exactly as God told him to build it. Why? Because it was to be patterned after heaven. That's where the pattern's from. Moses wasn't free to design it any way he wanted. It had to be patterned after heaven, right? Heaven is what? Where the presence of God is. This is a picture of heaven in the tabernacle. But there was a limitation to that tabernacle. Only the priests could enter it. No one else could enter this tabernacle. And if anyone wanted to meet with God, they had to go to the tabernacle. 
They had to make approach to the tabernacle, later the temple in Jerusalem or in Shiloh. But then what happens? This tabernacle motif shifts from a geographical location, and now we see the tabernacle comes a person in Christ Jesus. A preliminary fulfillment of this promise. In John 1.14, what do we know? It tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same word tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God now comes to man. Man no longer needs to try to approach God in a geographical place here in the incarnation. This is what God does. And now Paul, also quoting Leviticus 26 in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, indicates that the fulfillment of this promise of God dwelling with his people and being their God in some preliminary form is also present already now in the church. He quotes Leviticus 26. We are the temple of the living God. But now what does John see? The complete fulfillment of this promise. Not in part, not in its preliminary phase, but completely. Everywhere in the new heaven and the new earth is God's presence. The presence of God no longer limited by a geographical boundary or location and we see that in Revelation 21 2. We'll cover this in another message here. But John says in this, this picture of the New Jerusalem, he doesn't see a temple. There is no temple. There's no place he can look in all of this and go, ah, there's the temple of the Lord. That's where God is. No, no. What does he say? He says he doesn't see a temple because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. God is the temple. The Lamb is the temple. Everywhere is the temple because God's presence is everywhere. God is with us. He will dwell with us for all time, for all eternity, with no barrier between us. Have you ever been in one of those like moments in your life where you're like, I don't feel God's presence. Like, I don't feel Him near. I don't feel He's, he's with me. Well, God has abandoned me. I, you go into these dark nights of the soul and you're like, God, where are you? We will never again say that. We will never again feel that. We'll never again long for the presence of God because everywhere you turn, He's with us. He's with us. You know, when someone loses a loved one, Oftentimes, the way we, we comfort them or that they feel comforted is they start to think about heaven, and especially if their loved ones were in Christ, but heaven's where my loved ones are. So, so they begin to long for heaven because they'll be reunited with their loved ones. Maybe a mom, a dad, a, a child, a spouse, a friend, you know, a close loved one, and you're like, I, can't, I long for heaven. I want to be in heaven because I'll get to see them again. There's nothing wrong with that sentiment whatsoever. There's nothing wrong with believing that. If your loved one died in Christ, you'll be reunited with them in glory. But do we long for heaven as eagerly as the way we long for our loved ones who have gone before us? Do we long for God as eagerly as we long for that? Do we yearn to be in His presence unrestrained, with no limitation, no boundary. That's heaven, brothers and sisters. 
This is what John is seeing here, this promise fulfilled. God is with his people. He's dwelling with them. He's among them. He's everywhere. The unhindered presence and glory of Christ everywhere you turn. Heaven's not heaven because your loved ones are going to be there. As awesome as that will be. Heaven is heaven because Christ is there. Because that's God. Heaven's not heaven without Jesus. It's heaven because of Jesus. And there's no heaven without him. What a beautiful reality. What's life going to be like? The presence of God everywhere. God truly with us. I don't even know what that absolutely could feel like. But it's going to be amazing. The second reality that we see here is that God will prepare a sorrow-free world for us. You know this, we, every funeral I preach at, um, this is a message of hope and comfort to believers, right? That glory of the world to come that we're to set our hope on is one of where he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more and no mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What glorious hope that is. Because the sea is no more, because all sin and evil have been removed. They're no longer part of this new creation. There's no suffering or sickness. And all the things that that currently bring us sorrow will no longer mark our existence in the world to come. We can't comprehend a world like that. We, We don't know what it is to be absent of those things. This is why all these statements are in the negative. It's just telling us what's not there. It can't even express. John has no words to even express what is going to be there. We don't know what that's like. We don't know of an existence like that. So negative statements have to be made. But what we do know is that everything that brings tears to our eyes, everything that creates an ache in our soul, everything that traumatizes us and wounds us and breaks our heart, everything that feels like loss, is just not there. Parents will no longer get a call that their child has taken their life or has died in a tragic accident or has been arrested. We'll never hear again from a doctor, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. You're going to die. No longer will we sit at the bedside of a loved one wasting away from cancer or some other disease. No longer will we be lonely or or depressed Or needing anxiety medications. No longer will we be covered in a blanket of of darkness in our life that we can't see light through. You'll never cry yourself to sleep again. You'll never worry about a wayward child. There will be no more stillbirths or miscarriages. No infants dying. No disappointments. They're not going to be there. They're just, I don't know what that's like. I, they're not going to be there. All the things that afflict me physically in my body now that limit me. I, I don't know what it is a life to be absent from that, but that's going to be there. No more mass shootings, no rapes or murders or thefts. No child abuse, no, no more aging. You're not going to age. Now, for those of you who are older... If you're to enter into glory the way you look now, it's going to be okay, though. No no more aches and pains. No more arthritis. No more aches in our joints. 
Some are waking up exhausted and, and tired and, and no energy, right? No more headaches, no more allergies, no divorce, no unemployment, no homelessness, no worry about finances or how we're going to retire. Just, just no more worries. What could that life possibly be like? Everything, everything that saddens our heart here as part of our existence is just, it's not there. And not only is it just not there, the promise in Isaiah is that you'll remember it no more. Like there will be no context of this there. None. None whatsoever. You won't even bring it to mind. The former things have passed in such a way that you're not even like, yeah, I kind of remember I went through. That won't even be part of this year at all. Now, to be sure, we have moments of joy in this world. There's moments of happiness, right? Things do go generally good for most of us in life. But we cannot eradicate all of these negative things from our present experience. But they're just not even present in any way, shape, or form in the new creation. We will be completely free of those things. So, so John's telling us, here's something you can expect of the realities of heaven. This is kind of what it's going to be like. God's everywhere. And what you experience now in the sorrows and sufferings of life, they're just, they're nowhere to be found in the new creation. Now, these next few verses is God being quoted. God's making a few divine pronouncements here, three to, to be exact, starting in verse 5. And the first pronouncement that John hears, because he hears it from the one seated on the throne. Well, who's that? That's God, right? Behold, I am making all things new. It's a statement that speaks of the certainty of what God will do. I am making all things new. All things. Nothing of the old, nothing of the old order will persist or carry over into the new. The new really will look new. The second pronouncement is in that second half of that verse. He says to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Write all of this. Take this down, John. I keep my word. I am faithful and I am true. And everything we've read there is, is, a, is a depiction of an Old Testament prophecy. And it will be fulfilled exactly as God said he would. They will come to pass. Verse 6 through 8, he says to him, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is done. It's an emphatic declaration of what? That all things will be made new before they are made new. Look how God's saying that. It's done. But, but it hasn't happened. It's done. It's done. I said it's done, so it's done, right? God is saying it's done. He's, he's emphatically declaring that. And how does he do this? He identifies himself a certain way with a title we've seen before. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What's he stressing there? And that declaration of who he is, he stresses his eternality. He is before all things and before all times, and he's at the end of it all. 
Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega being the last letter of the Greek alphabet. We could say that God is first, last, and everything in between. And it's an amazing phrase that we saw quoted right at the beginning of Revelation. And it's God quoted again as speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Right at the beginning. We hear it now echoed again here in this passage. And right at the end, at the end of chapter 22, we're going to see it echoed one more time. The eternality of God. What does that mean? Why is that there? Well, it's not a coincidence. All of the events, every single event that we have read so far that John wrote down, everything he's seen and heard, right? All of that lies under God's absolute comprehensive sovereignty over all of the events of history. It will come to pass. God has gone to the end and has already made it happen. And here we are in time walking all this through of what's already been done. Don't ask me to explain that, but it is. It is. It's done. It's amazing. So for us, we can have assurance that just as God brought the first creation into being, he will bring it to an end and usher in the new brothers and sisters. We can, we can count on that. And this last pronouncement, this third one here, he's going to tell us, well, who's, who gets to partake of this? Who's going to be part of the new? Who's going to be included? And who is excluded from the new? And he gives two two. Folks, two people, two people groups who are included in this new. They're the same, but described in two different ways. First, to the thirsty. He says, I will give, again, this is God speaking, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Who will be part of the new creation and taste of the realities of that life? Those who thirst for God. Those who thirst for God and come to him for the waters of life. A fulfillment of Isaiah 55.1. A promise many of us are familiar with. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Those who are thirsty are invited to come and drink from him. Who is the source, the fountain of all life. And you can't buy this. There's, There's not enough money in the world... And no, and no treasure in the cosmos that can buy what we need to satiate our thirst. No, nothing at all. No amount of money can get you a sip of this water. The only qualifier to receive this is that you thirst. What does it mean to thirst? Specifically, the thirst for God, it means you don't thirst for the things of the world. You don't thirst for the things that will excuse you, exclude you from Paradise restored from this new creation. This that we're talking about here is only going to be for those who find their ultimate satisfaction in God alone who can satiate satiate our thirst. Nothing else can do that. It's echoed again right at the end. Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And look, let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What an invitation. Who's going to get to taste of the realities that we just looked at? The thirsty. 
but specifically the thirsty for God. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and the holiness of God. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, this inheritance. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Those who will live in this renewed creation here, who will inherit everything promised, are those who have conquered and are God's sons. They get to live in this. The place where God dwells everywhere. Dwelling with man, all sorrows and suffering excluded. They're going to be the ones who are united with Christ with true and persevering faith. No one else. Only those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No one else is there. It is for those who do not compromise their faith, who truly overcome, who conquer to the end, and hold fast, even if it costs them their lives. What a promise. I mean, we saw it in chapter 2 and 3. In the seven letters to the churches. How did they all end? To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. Here are the rewards. Well, all of those rewards are fulfilled right here at the end. In the new heavens and the new earth. But it will only be for those who overcome. It's to encourage us, brothers and sisters, to persevere through hardship, through trials, through the tough stuff of life, through persecution, Because in doing so, we will inherit the fullness of God's blessings. It's for us who persevere. But verse 8 tells us who's not going to receive this. Who's not going to inherit it. And it's it's a list. It's like a catalog of damning sins here. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Wait a minute, Dan. I thought we were done with judgment. We are. Judgment's already happened. Okay. But he's just answering that question. Here's who's excluded. Here's who you won't find as part of the new cosmos. So it's, it's a glimpse again of judgment and punishment. But it's already happened. There's, no, there's not going to be judgment and punishment after the new heavens and the new earth. This has already taken place. And who are these? Well, these are those who did not thirst for God. Those who did not trust Christ. Those who've refused to come to God. Who've rejected the gospel of God. For them, everlasting punishment in the lake of fire is reserved. Now, we already saw the lake of fire there. The end of chapter 20. The great white throne judgment. This is where all of those who worshipped the beast and took his mark found themselves. Where the beast and the false prophet and Satan were already cast. So is this lake of fire part of the new heaven and the new earth? Not exactly. Not exactly. It persists because it's mentioned there. It's ongoing. It's everlasting. It doesn't cease with the new heavens and the new earth. But, but somehow the lake of fire is outside of it. It's outside of the geography of the new cosmos. And the reason it's outside of it is because we're already told that in this new cosmos, there's no death. So there can't be the place of the second death in the new. Somehow it's outside of it. And that language creeps up again here at the end of of this particular chapter. And we'll look at it next week. But here we have a list, right? And this is one of two summary lists here at the end of Revelation. 
Uh, Doug Van Dorn describes these lists this way. He describes them as violations of God's eternal transcendent law. They're breaches of the covenant of works that binds all creation together. They are defilements against nature, ruptures against the supernatural world, abuses against our fellow man, and most of all, treachery against the creator himself. Some we think is big, some we think of as little. All are a falling short of God's glory. Cowards, I think that includes believers who made a profession of faith, but when the heat got turned off, abandoned the faith, forsook their allegiance to Christ and their loyalty to Christ are enumerated amongst this. Not just the pagan, heathen unbelievers. I think there's going to be many professing believers that are part of this list. It's interesting that the list ends with liars, kind of like it does in the next list that we're going to see. Or those that lie. Well, those that lie are saying, I'm of Christ, but they really are not. False teachers would be included in that. And believers who apostatize. For these who do such things, there's no renewal. There's no inhabiting and living in this new creation. It will truly be a horrific thing. Now, I'm overwhelmed by what John sees here in this vision of the realities of God dwelling with us and and what's not going to be part of that world and it's all the things that we want gone from this one. We suffer, we go through so much heartache and pain in this life. Um, We don't understand all that God is doing. I mean, we question, we wrestle with like, God, why did you design it to be this way? Why is it suffering then glory? Like I would have just gone glory and then more glory, you know. Uh, that's kind of how we would script this thing. We don't know. We're not, we're not God. But we do know that what God has done, is he does for his glory. And he does it for his glory and his glory alone. He gets more glory out of this. And I'm okay with that. And you should be as well. And we, we know from what we see here, this world will fade away as we know it. And then it's infinite joy and bliss forever with God everywhere. Unhindered intimacy. Our deepest longings and thirsts quenched. Every tear that we shed in this world wiped away, right? Never a memory of it anymore. That's glory. We're going to experience that. So I want to encourage you with those same words to hold fast. Overcome to the end. What in this world is worth losing out on that? And we're going to go through a lot of things. We're, 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 we're going to face some, some traumatizing, terrifying, traumatic, and horrific things in this life. I mean, the loss. And I think of some people I know personally, and it's just loss after loss after loss. And the ache and the pain. And you, you don't have words to comfort. All you can say is, I'm praying for you. And I, I'm sorry. And you can, you can weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Right? Because... This seems like this is all that this world is marked by. But our hope can't be here. Our hope has to be there in the world to come. Because God said he's going to make it all new. All of it. Every single thing. is going to be new. Hold fast. Persevere. That world is far greater and more real than what we are experiencing right now. And you need to believe that. 
And you need to believe that God is faithful and true. That he is the Alpha and the Omega. He will bring it to pass. He's already said, it is done. It is done. Heaven, brothers and sisters, is only for those who love God. It's only for those who thirst for God. So do you love him? Do you thirst for him? Do you long for him more than anything else in your life? If you don't, I invite you to respond to the call. To respond to this call to come to Jesus. He is the fountain of living water. There's nothing in this world that can satiate the thirst that is embedded in the human soul that only can be filled by God. So respond to that. Respond to the good news of Jesus Christ by trusting in Him, by turning from your sin and trusting in Him alone for your salvation. I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis, in his fantasy novel series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which many of you may have read or are familiar with, the final book he wrote in that series is titled The Last Battle. I just want to read to you the last words of that book and the way he closes this story out. He writes, And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. This is Aslan, the Christ figure. He no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at least, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's for us. We're in the preface of the story. It hasn't even started. It hasn't even been written yet. We're not in the main story. We're in the prelude. We're going to get to it on one day and it is going to be written and it will take all of eternity to write. And what a great story that will be. Hold fast to the end. Thirst for him. Long for him. He will fill you and he will sustain you so that you and I can be there on that day.